everyone, and welcome to the DCRO Risk Governance Podcast, where we're focusing on risk governance issues, learning about the work of and receiving guidance from experienced board directors, senior executives, and thought leaders on issues that are important for those governing organizations. My guest today is Brian Barnier. Brian is the Director and Head of Analytics for ValueBridge Advisors in New York and Burnt Oak Capital in London, where he uses agile methods in decision and data science to focus on challenging problems that can often derail business initiatives. He is the author of the Operational Handbook for Financial Companies, has penned over 100 articles, and has contributed to two additional books, Risk Management and Finance and Risk and Performance Management, a Guide for Government Decision Makers. He serves on multiple editorial panels, committees of organizations like OSEG and the International Corporate Governance Network, and has been quoted widely in leading business publications like the Wall Street Journal. Brian is an adjunct faculty member at the Colin Powell School for Civic and Global Leadership at the City College of New York, and has past experience with IBM, Lucent Technologies, and AT&T, where he led teams to multiple patents. Brian earned his BBA and MBA, both with distinction, from the University of Michigan. Welcome, Brian. Hey, Dave. Nice to be here. Glad to have you with us. Brian, I want to start with two points I've seen you make about risk management that I think tie together in important ways. The first is, and I quote, the best risk management is about managing risk to business performance, end quote. And the second is, quote, root cause is the key to finding and fixing risks to performance, end quote. Can you expand on both of those? Yeah, sure. The, the first one is very easy. Uh, almost everyone thinks they've got risk management because they've got controls, but that's just totally untrue. They miss the context and the solutions to enable success and otherwise to manage risk to business performance, to manage risk to outcomes. Now, risk arises because your path to success has bumps in the road that can make you fail. Um, <laughs> dangerous at our COVID time. How many uh, people plan for the pandemic, right? The same for launching a new product, for seeking profit in another country or providing humanitarian aid. It doesn't have to be for profit. To find and fix risks to these objectives, this is the performance thing, the necessity is to have context. So just pause for a minute. Think about the importance of context in anything we do in our daily lives. In your boardroom, ask your fellow board members and managers, do we really know how something works? Do we know the details? better than our competitors if we're going to win in the marketplace, better than our partners or our customers if we're going to have power in our value chain. In baseball, do you know which way to run the bases? You've got to know the details. Or if you're a real geek, you know the designated hitter rule. But knowing how it works is the path to discovering those little tiny root causes, into your other piece of your question, that cascade like splitting an atom to explode into like existential threats, right? Mortgage bubbles, viruses, geopolitical crises, whatever it is, right? Or some little product defect that just gets you, you know, a whole negative social media universe. So to realize this, just again, reflect for a moment. Consider now how foolish the term event is that's used in boardrooms all the time. Consider how much insight is dangerously hidden by aggregate average heat maps that hide or, or misdirect. And so the tools actually become threats to our ability to survive and to thrive. 
and, and to zoom out to sort of the daily news, consider the world around us, uh, from the EU, European Union to India to China. The adage, the old adage, all politics is local, right, for school board elections or something, is trumping the, the whole post-World War II globalization. And this is, again, where this, this notion about managing performance and understanding these causes come in, because we can ask ourselves or ask your management team or fellow board members, is this political reality equally clear in the corporate strategy and, and capital allocation that our board is supposed to oversee? So pause, stop, think about it. Have you asked your fellow board members, do we have a ward room that gives us a situational awareness to analyze and manage this better than our competitors if we're going to win in the marketplace? So just, you know, to, to wrap up the answer to your question, try this. Think of anything that has happened, right? It, it, it could be in your personal life, it could be in the business. Then document the root causes. How many of those root causes were really new? Certainly not SARS-CoV-2 that's causing this mess. But when you think about that over and over again, you get into the how it works and how these systems connect in the world. Well, and, and I think there's something important in this root cause uh, that I hear you talking about is something that I've often referred to as first principles which are breaking things down into the, into the core components that drive. But you just touched on something that, that I think is really important, is that everything we do is within a system or multiple systems, and they all interact with each other. And so getting to these root causes gets us to the place of, of starting to understand what one part of the system might be uh, driven by or the things that, that uh, affect our performance. Is there a systems view of risk that you advocate, or um, what's, what's the best way to describe taking a look at the systems uh, in, in terms of our risk management? Yeah, uh, so you're absolutely correct, David, and, and different people use different terms. So, you know, some people call it systems thinking, some people call it systems think, some people call it systems science. You know, that, that Johns Hopkins that study with COVID that, you know, we look at, that the original version was thrown up by their, their systems engineering program, for example. A, a systems view simply formalizes the how it works, right? It looks at all the interrelated pieces to understand two things. First, the flows of anything, such as manufacturing the smartphone that's in your hand to a hospital visit to understand then what could go bump in the night, what could make this wrong, your, your package delivery, when everybody's you know, exploding the number of packages they're getting at home. The second point is to know the danger that arises because a system boundary is violated. Think of an airplane flying. It's usually a happy system with a beautiful view off the airplane and we weren't thinking about COVID. But if the system boundary conditions are violated, um, either by a storm that's external or internal, right? A problem with the mechanics or the pilots, then things get ugly really fast. Another way to think of it is like your screensaver, you know, one of the little bubbles that bounce around. Each bubble is happy until it hits the edge of your screen and then it, it like clashes to this reality, the edge of your screen and it comes back and bounces. So it's those boundaries that become very important. So think about that. How does a board member add value, create value in your boardroom? To survive and thrive, in one sense, really means relentlessly asking managers about the boundary conditions. And whether we're going to slam into or have something intrude in our happy little world that completely messes it up. I mean, as a child, you saw Horton, here's a who, right? 
they're a little in the hoovial and the dust speck floating around, or men in black when it turns out that the Earth is really just a little marble in a giant universe that people, you know, space aliens are playing croquet with. It's that reality, right? And so this is, this is what you've got to do. And a board member has got to sit back and say, is what we think is the boundary really the boundary, or is there a whole world out there? <laughs> And it's been formalized into many disciplines, from aviation to information technology, biology. The, the whole field of decision science came together in the 1930s. But tragically, those disciplines are almost entirely unknown in the controls and compliance-based world of risk management that dominates boardrooms. So all that great stuff that powered production for World War II, right? I'm from Michigan, right? We built stuff. And they created billions of sales success in managing risk to performance. Again, there's that performance from your first question. Yet in typical boardrooms, a weird thing happened around 2005 and like flushed all that stuff. So coming back to today, here's an example. Are you doing business in the EU? Right now, for the EU political machine, it takes ages for a decision to unfold, including Brexit. So you should have time to get ahead of anything. But the question for board member is, is your management wisely using that time? Are your managers following the money? Remember the old Columbo show, follow the money, to predict policy decisions. Now, the UK is a big net customer of the EU, and the customer is king. If you're a company, you know that. And the UK also has unique resources that the EU desperately wants. All you have to do is read the news headlines, even this morning. If your management is surprised by EU decisions that they have been over the last three years, they simply have their head in the sand. So try this. Give your management the sardine test. Ask them to explain the role of sardines in Brexit. If you're selling in the UK or the EU and your management can't explain the sardine test, then your business is in dangerous waters. Forgive the pun. Um, you know, so... There's different ways to look at it. If, if you're a history buff, you can trace the history of where these controls things uh, came from in this weird accident in 2005 that sort of, you know, threw everything out. I mean, for example, did you know that most of today's cybersecurity methods came not from the IT world, but by accident, they came from an accounting method to, paying, to avoid paying off foreign officials. And that got switched into a method to use to protect against cyber warfare attacks against your company. I mean, that's like, you know, using the method to count the cash at the ticket box at a basketball game is the same method to manage risk on the court. They're entirely different dynamics. It makes no sense in that that's what goes on in, in boardroom. So if you're interested in that bit of history, um, uh, I have an article just coming out in the Taylor Francis Ed Pax journal uh, called Cybersecurity, the End Came. And I go through, yes, 2,000 years of the word controls <laughs> and, hopefully and in this accident in 2005. Yeah, hopefully in a consumable number of pages. Yeah, uh, yeah, just a couple thousand words. So, so it's interesting as, as you talk about these boundary conditions. Um, I've had a couple of people ask me um, what I thought one of the biggest impacts of COVID beyond the, beyond the health concerns would be. And what I've said to them is that people now see systems and networks that they didn't see before because they worked so well. So you talked about the airplane. And sure, some people get uncomfortable when they get on an airplane, but most people who travel a lot don't think a whole lot about it. But all the systems that are required for that plane to fly safely 
Um, there are at least as many systems required to get a cup of coffee into your hands in the morning. And people don't yep. see these when they're working well. So I think that's, that's really important um, when you talk about the systems view and, and understanding how everything uh, is dependent upon, upon other uh, systems functioning well. So at a board level, we're really going to be high, uh, focused on, on high-level issues. And, and some of these details, I think, might be missed. But if you're going to be making decisions uh, at the board level, you and I have talked before about how to improve those. How do we best frame the discussion of risk? Um, and how do we improve decision-making at the board level? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's two classic things that, that are out there. I mean, because how do you decide is a risk return calculation, right? I mean, it's two fundamental things that board members are supposed to be doing. Three, you know, hire management, you know, do the strategy, and then, you know, oversee the, the capital allocation pieces. That's what they're, they're overseeing, right? And then you got all this other stuff. But that's your, your core value creation. And decision making decisions they make decisions right and and there's actually you know whole discipline around how do you make decisions and it comes from two fields one is sort of the math type that came together in the early 1900s really sort of gelled in the 1930s and then there's a psychology type um and uh and again from a management organizational psychology perspective that you know also gelled around the 1930s um but pre-world war ii and it got a big boost in refinement around uh, World War II. And so they deeply link risk and return or reward, whatever you want to call it. Both emphasize context. Both drill into the details because it's the details where everything happens. And so there's this huge danger of uh, just assuming away the details and assuming everything's going to be fine because it isn't. Because all of these things that come up and kill you existed in the details you know, weeks, months, years, decades in some cases uh, before that. And if you've gone to a shrink, right, the, the shrink gets into details. If you do math, you get into the details. So you've got to have a way to apprehend that because the danger is not knowing how it works. And again, from a competitive perspective, knowing how it works better than competitors. So to your point about the boardroom, think about the last board risk presentations you saw. Did it combine risk and return, especially if in a non-financial industry, because risk return is more common in, say, asset management? Did it show systems boundaries and warnings? Did it show root causes or first causes? Um, did it show how cascades happens and what triggers a cascade? Did it talk about structural blindness? What keeps us from seeing the world around us? Did it, and how do we warn against that? Did it talk about cognitive bias and how we warn against getting sucked into that trap or was it just controls and compliance the heat maps control status blah 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 that did not tie off to how the world really works and achieving some performance objective in the world so sort of let that settle into your mind and i, I gotta hit this controls thing because getting rid of that gunk will allow more time for the more important stuff when controls fail to manage risk in a dynamic world, it's not usually because the controls are implemented poorly. It's because the controls were structurally incapable of achieving the objective that somebody hoped they would do. Thus, and that's not their mission, right? The, right their right. mission is to control. Right. The board members have to get ahead of this, right, when they're talking with management. So the board members to help role is to help a manager pause 
take a breath, ah, overcome the structural blindness to the structural limits of controls, and then fix these things so that you can manage risk to improve business performance. Well, and you mentioned two things. I want to I want to follow up on something you just said there, but then two terms that you use, which I think are pretty important. Um, one of the challenges in getting the details is that there has to be message compression. So as as the message comes through the organization and eventually to the board, um, it gets compressed and altered intentionally or unintentionally. But but someone has to be bringing the appropriate details to the board. And I think that you know, whether it's in a chief risk officer's role or if it's the CEO or someone that's doing that, one of the changes it seems to me that boards have to be doing is to make sure that they have absolute trust in whoever it is that's compressing that message in some ways of validating it. So there's some value to control if control is validating that message. But people also get used to how they've done things. So you mentioned two terms. Um, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about both structural blindness and cognitive biases that, that take place in the boardroom. So psychologists describe our brains as being change resistant. We like the way things are, we're comfortable with the way things are. And if we can think of the board as having a collective brain or the individual brains of, of board members, or the brains of individual board members, can you, you know, what is it in our brain that tries to talk us out of the benefits of changing? Is that, is that something that can change even? Yeah, um, yes. Um, and uh, the brain science people are great on this. They talk about the chemicals. They talk about plasticity and, you know, all this cool stuff. And there's just like, you know, great sort of popular science, uh, you know, shows on this that you could watch on Curiosity Stream and, you know, all that stuff. But to boil it down for our little conversation, you know, here, there are three ways to think about this. If they're just jotting notes that they can use in a board meeting. The first is that our brains block the dynamics that force change. You know, this, and this can be reinforced by corporate silos or heads down pressures or standardized report formats or standardized processes that sort of reinforce the same old, same old, same old. And this is the structural blindness phrase that the shrinkologists <laughs> um, use when we don't see what is right around us because of the way that, that we're perceiving the world. A great example came, I was uh, uh, wandering around on a conference call, taking it from home, looking out the front window. My son has his archery target set up and, um, and would shoot from our front porch to the archery target. It was a nice sort of down range from him. And as I'm standing out there, this little fawn deer walks out on the front. He has no idea or she, that she is standing directly in where my son normally fires from and has no you know, awareness of, of what that is. And that's an example of this, this blindness. The second point is that we undervalue the benefits of change. This is cognitive bias, right? We see the benefits, go, oh, they're not that great, right? I mean, you know, the grapes are probably sour, you know, the control, as you quote the fable. But the, 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 where we can get the goal that we can achieve, it's not that great, so it's not worth changing. And then, of course, the flip side of that is we overvalue the cost of changing, especially the, pers the personal discovery. Um, and in a corporate land, that's often reinforced by the standard overhead of, you know, corporate procedures. Um, or, you know, if you conceive of a car as something that must be pulled by a horse, then, of course, you'll never realize the benefits of, you know, faster speed, air conditioning, onboard computing, and cup holders galore. So 
one of those three things is where we always get trapped and that the practical solutions and proven solutions start because you talked about collective brains with surveys of, of board member personality tapes. I mean, I've taken the board bonafide survey from BoardWise. I like that a lot. Um, a second way is to just understand structural blindness and cognitive bias and have a, a, a relentless process to evaluate, are we falling into these traps? Um, and so, you know, try it, you know, take those notes that I just mentioned and think about anything bad that has ever happened. Again, personally, you're in your board and ask yourself, how many people were aware of it before your board? And then as you make your list, look at the conferences that have gone on for years or decades, the papers, the books, the lectures, the podcasts that all talked about this and your board was unaware. And then ask why? What part of the structural blindness or cognitive bias prevented us from seeing and acting? And use that as your starting point to, to fix it. And I know this is a lot of sort of gunky and all that, but um, you know, our mutual friend, Michelle Walker, with her best-selling book, The Gray Rhino, she's much more entertaining. She called it a gray rhino. I'm using, you know, shrinkology talks. Or if you're a fan of the, the genre of police uh, detective shows, then absolutely read uh, Kim Rosmo's book, Criminal Investigative Failures, where he talks about those same things in, in uh, detectives investigating serial killers. Some, something along the lines of you see what you expect to see. Is that correct? Yeah, that's part of it, right? And there's this whole list that they have that go through. And some are like, um, uh, you know, magicians, uh, tricks that magicians use to, uh, you know, do sleight of hand, right? And all these things are operating in our brains where we have brain coherence that tries to create patterns out of things that may not be there, but we fill in. The uh, Nat Geo did this show on, on brain, brain games, I think they call. They went around to like Central Park and gave people can you read this? And right, and people were filling in words or seeing things that weren't actually on the page. Tons and tons of these that you can go find on the internet, but they apply in the boardroom and you've got to, you know, furiously protect yourselves against these. Otherwise you're gonna end up on the bad end of something awful that's all over social media or in litigation or both. And, um, and you're gonna go, how do we get there? And when you unfold it, it was perfectly obvious how you got there. Is, is it sufficient to have one insider um, bringing this up? So one board member, and it doesn't have to be the same one each time, but, but a board member uh, continually asking, you know, are we stuck? Are we missing something? Are we just used to doing things this way? Um, or is there a formal process that you go through to, to avoid these kinds of uh, blindness and bias problems? Yeah, absolutely. There's a formal um, process for doing that. I go back to the, the points that I mentioned. So uh, do the personality inventory surveys. Again, I like the board wise one. When you go through those, you'll find that people have got different types so they can play different roles on the board. Some people are the right kind of people to be that, the you know, non-executive chair or the lead director or whatever. But that person, because of their administrative moderating skills may not be the best person personality wise to be that crisis ready board member. And then you gotta look at the expertise that people have in their backgrounds. Who is naturally a system thinker? Who gets into the details? Who's willing to sit on the extra conference calls to understand what's going on? Um, and you put those two together and you find that you've got, you know, one or more people who are primed to be your crisis ready board members. And then they go through training so that they are ready um, to come in and play that important role. Uh, both to help in the prevention and then especially uh, when something is, is unfolding and they can take that sort of leadership role.
Yeah, and I, I want to get to a little bit more about this idea of a crisis-ready board member. I mean, we're, we're certainly focused primarily at the board level on achieving goals, but we know there are going to be bumps. We know there are always going to be things we hadn't expected. Um, let's take the pandemic. I mean, that's, that's something that um, we knew would happen. We just, the surprises and the timing. But if you think about time relative to the pandemic, so we're, we're in this board mindset that is typically long-term, but time is moving both quickly and slowly in the, in the pandemic. And what I mean by that is that for nearly all of us, we've never experienced a global pandemic in our lives. So it feels like events are moving quickly. At the same time, events feel like they're moving slowly because we want resolution now. That, that tends to be the nature of, of somebody serving on a board. I want, I want to solve this problem. And I don't have control over that. You talk about how um, we should view risk in the context of cascading situations in time. I think that's the expression that I've, I've seen you use. What does that mean generally? How should boards apply that mindset in this current pandemic and, and, and everything else that's coming uh, out of it? And then maybe tie it into this idea of being a crisis ready board member. Yeah, sure. And you use the term first principles before any of these things apply, you know, origin stories. I mean, sometimes I even, you know, give talks on this and use it in, you know, like the, the Marvel and the DC, uh, you know, comics universes. Where did these things come from or history or whatever? But a cascade situation in time just literally flows from causes or origins and it cascades again, like atoms, like water flowing down a hill, whatever you want. It can be information cyber warfare attack on Equifax to say the Sanford, Michigan dam collapses that we all saw on TV in the middle of COVID. Those big bad things started as tiny, tiny origins, coding weaknesses or, or just literally drops of rain, right? And then they unfold at a speed. It can be faster, it can be slower. It can be months or a few years for cyber attack to develop, to be discovered from some weakness and a method to exploit it. Um, it could be years or decades for the dam to burst. Look at all the information that came out about uh, you know, the reports that go back for ages. And so that's where you then get into this issue of, of these crisis-ready board members. And do they have the combination of uh, the personalities and the expertise to engage with managers in the evaluation and the response? And that could be you know, something that's more methodical or, you know, one of the big examples in crisis communication is Tony Hayward in the in the uh, you know at BP in, the, in the, the Gulf of Mexico oil spill, right? Who was a person that was tapping on a shoulder that said, "Tony, this is not a good idea. Don't say this. Show me your copy before you go." <laughs> I mean, <laughs> would have saved the guy's job and lots of you know negative criticism and, and everything, right? That comes out um, on those things. So. Having that understanding of cascading situations in time, having the brain to work with it, having the expertise to put it in context is what gives you, you know, a great crisis ready board member. But only if you do the, the personality traits inventory first, only if you do the training first, only if you think about how do we have on our board meeting something that says, hey, are we falling into structural blindness? Hey, are we falling into cognitive bias? Um, and I mean, these are, this brain science stuff is popular. I mean, Neil deGrasse Tyson has a new master class on cognitive bias. Well, and it's, it's interesting because um, you're talking in some ways about the science of creating effective teams. And um, we know that that's put in place in a lot of other uh, situations. 
maybe not so much in the management of, or I should say, the governance of a business. So I think this is this is really important. I want we've just got about uh, two, three minutes left, and I want to come back to something maybe a little more specific um, or or narrow in terms of focus. But you had said something early in our conversation, which I thought was a a, a great warning and a great expression when the tools actually become threats. So we've got tools being presented to us that are supposed to help us in dealing with all of these issues, but because of their design and, and how they're put together, they actually become threats because they, they create some of this blindness that you've talked about. Now you've written a really well-received handbook on op risk, and I'm wondering, do you consider um, these tools uh, in the way they're presented to be an operational risk? And you know, in general, what is the, your sense of the state of that? Or, or should boards be looking for more from the risk infrastructure um, to help get past the tools being threats? What, what's what's your sense of the state of uh, the state of affairs right now? Uh, the state is pretty poor. Um, and for an example, I'll go to two very celebrated people. Um, one is Christopher Hart. He's the former chair of the National Transportation Safety Board. He was part of the operational risk handbook project. Another is John Breslin the former chair of the U.S. Chemical Safety Board. Uh, and both are eloquent on how the wrong behaviors have, have killed people um, and how what you think is good can actually reinforce bad things. Uh, there's a whole science around cockpit management, for example, in airplanes. Right. Right. Um, or uh, for chemical safety, John Breslin talks about the difference between slips, trips, and falls with process safety. People can be really good on you know, taping lines on and wearing yellow jackets and hats and goggles, and then plants explode. And the, the Texas BP disaster plant explosion, the people were literally coming back from an awards lunch to have this explosion occur, right? So this is extremely well documented in other areas. And what we've gotten into in this, you know, thing since 2005 where we picked up this controls and compliance approach is we've jettisoned all this other literature. So each and every um, board member who was part of the operational risk handbook project, starting with the then chair of the New York Stock Exchange, Marsh Carter, all had other operational experience. They all knew how stuff worked. Um, and that is, is what provides the, the power to it. And that's why I'm glad it's used today at the London Institute of Banking and Finance and, and elsewhere, where people actually want to understand how stuff works. And then that allows you to connect to operational systems, right? Sales, marketing, operations, financial systems. And you build on that to get your, what's my risk to sales? What's my risk to missing the product deadline? What's my but you're tied in and that deep tie-in is what makes this more actionable, more detail-oriented. And then you can roll it up to the board member, put a bow on it uh, you know, for a summary deck, but you can easily drill down to find out what's going on. You can easily find the right person. And there are just so many resources out there um, you know, where you can read about some of these very painful situations. Uh, that have occurred in the past, and there's just really, really good work, like C.K. Prahalad's Competing for the Future or uh, John Breslin's Chemical Safety Board. They've got a YouTube channel with all these videos. Most are 15 minutes. Have one while having a tuna fish sandwich and just go like, OMG, this thing that killed people was years in the making with very specific, you know, first principles, uh, as you would call them. Yeah. Well, this is, I mean, this is fascinating. I think for NomGov that are thinking about uh, skill sets that they need, 
as they seek to fill board openings. Um, it's pretty interesting to start thinking about applying some of the principles you've talked about today um, to make sure that the decision making is done well. And, and I think boards would do well to, to learn more about this. Uh, Brian, I want to thank you for your time. I think people want to know more about uh, Brian's work. Value Bridge Advisors is, is uh, uh, a website you can go to. And then in the podcast uh, listing here, I'll have a link back to Brian's uh, LinkedIn page so you can connect with him there. Brian, thank you again. Uh, these insights are ones that we're not going to get from a lot of people. So the fact that you took your time today to be with us is greatly appreciated. And everyone who's listening, I hope that you find this valuable and, and will act upon some of the things that we've learned today. So thanks, Brian. You're most welcome. Have a great one.